Hosea chapter number 7. As we come to chapter 7, as we come to the time of Hosea, Israel was in some sort of mess. I mean, they had some relationship, at least I think they thought they did, with Yahweh God, with Jehovah God. But they had mixed their religion with foreign gods. And so a generation had grown up that did not know the Lord at all. And so they had reaped to the wind and now they were about to sow the whirlwind. And the whirlwind amounted, as we've seen in the first few chapters, or what was coming on Israel and what was already there was this, this gross immorality. There was violence throughout the land. There was a famine for the word of God throughout the land. Uh, and... Uh, uh, all the priests in the land were corrupt. Uh, they, all the prophets were false prophets except for a few. There were a few that weren't. And, and so the people wouldn't have known that they needed to turn to God or how to turn to God, even if they knew they needed to turn to God. That's how much of a mess they were in. And, and what was God's heart in all of this? Well, we saw that Last week in verse number four, I mean, it's like the Lord cries out and he says in verse number four of chapter six, he says, oh, Ephraim, what shall I do to you? What should I do to help you? Oh, Judah, what shall I do for you? You're, you're, you're going down the same path as, as Ephraim has gone down. So, so what, what can I do to make things right? And really, there was nothing the Lord could do at this point uh, for, for the Lord to be able to been able to have helped Israel, they were going to have to repent. And at this point, they were past repentance. But that's a scary place to get as a nation where you reach a point where you're past repentance. And listen to what the Lord says in verse number one. He says, when I would have healed Israel. So what, what was the heart of God? What did God want to do? He wanted to heal Israel. But he makes the case now that they're past healing. He says, when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered. And it wasn't a pretty sight. I mean, it was worse than you could possibly imagine. And the wickedness of Samaria, what was Samaria? Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And so what he's saying, what the Lord is saying right there, even your government is wicked. Your government is especially wicked. For they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes the spoil outside. So the Israelites had become like these barbarian marauders, you know, where these, these barbarian robbers, they were so wicked that they didn't, even, they didn't even care what they did. Their conscience had been seared. And, and uh, this deep-rooted wickedness went all the way up to Samaria, the seat of their government. And so, so their leaders were totally corrupt. And when a society reaches a point where it has wicked leaders who call good evil and evil good, then that society is on the verge of being totally lost. It's on the verge of being totally past healing. Because that type of society not only has no conscience, it has no fear of God. And what was at the root of their lack of fear of God? What was at the root of that? What's at the root of all sin? 
Unbelief, well, pride and unbelief, and really pride and unbelief go together. They just didn't believe anymore in the Lord. Obviously, they didn't believe in the Lord because they were boldly uh, rebelling against the Lord. And they, they felt, felt they were going to get away with it. And, and, and they didn't think there were going to be any consequences for their sin. And so look at what the Lord does in verse number two. He warns them. This is what he says. He says, they do not consider in their hearts that I remember how much of their wickedness? All their wickedness. All of it. There's no, when you turn from the Lord, there's no covering for your sin. There's no mercy. And the Lord says, they do not consider in their hearts that I remember it all, everything. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They've totally encompassed them. They're wicked to the core. And they are before my face day and night. I see it all. I see it all. And really, I think what the Lord is saying at this point in verse number two, I've had enough. My, the cup of wrath is full. And all along, what are the leaders doing? Look in verse number three. They're rejoicing. They make a king glad with their wickedness. The king, their leaders rejoice in their wickedness. And the princes in their lies. They embrace lies. Their leadership rejoices in wickedness. Man, that sounds awful familiar to me. I don't know about you. I think one of the saddest days in the history of the United States of America was when the Supreme Court voted to overturn the state laws relating to homosexual marriage. And I'm not... You know, it's not the homosexual marriage thing, but it's just like, in other words, we're not going to have this man. We're not going to have God rule over us. We're not going to be governed by his law. That's what the Supreme Court was saying with that ruling. And it was pretty sad. And what did our leaders do? What did the president do? He draped the White House with lights that made a rainbow. Now think of the desecration that takes place there. Do you understand what the rainbow is? The rainbow isn't a symbol for homosexuality. The rainbow is God's symbol for his mercy and his grace and his love. And, 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 and our leaders, by doing that, were degrading that symbol, a holy symbol, a symbol uh, uh, given to us by the Lord after the flood. And so God was sick of it at that point. Why was it? I mean, why did it make? You know, I mean, why does things like that make God sick? For they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. They scoff at the Lord. They scoff at his laws. They scoff at his righteousness. And now what does the Lord see? He sees their wickedness. Look at verse number four. It gets worse. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by a baker. He comes stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. What's he saying right there? What he said, life is sort of like an oven. You, you know, life, life is good, but sometimes it's like being in an oven, isn't it? God kind of stirs the heat. But there comes a point when he stirs the heat and there's no reaction to his stirring. 
that he just leaves the dough along to get totally leavened. When we talk about leaven in the Bible, what does it always represent? Sin. And so what he's saying here, he just, he quit stirring the fire, he quit kneading the bread, and now he's going to wait for the bread to be leavened. He's going to wait for them to be totally full of sin and pride, and they will be ripe for judgment. Look at verse number five. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick. Inflamed with wine, he stretched out his hand with scoffers. I mean, so the king joins in with these scoffers. And, and they all get drunk on the, not just so much, I, I think he's talking about literal drunkenness here, but he's also talking about spiritual drunkenness. They're drunk on the things of the world. And they scoff at the things of God. They laugh at the things of God. I mean, is that not like reading the newspaper? Our leaders stick their thumb in God's eye. They laugh at the things of God. They laugh at this word. They laugh at the Genesis creation account. They laugh when you say Jesus is the only way into heaven, the only way into the Father. They laugh at that. They prepare their heart. Oh, let me reword. Let me reword that just a little bit. They prepare their heart for the for the oven, while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all night. It seems like God's sleeping and like He's not going to do anything, but in the morning, there's a morning coming when they're going to all be thrown into this flaming fire, when they're totally leavened, when they're full of sin, when the cup of wrath is full, then they're going to be thrown into the fire of judgment. They are all hot like an oven and they have devoured their judges and all their, I mean, they're, they're judging themselves. Really what he's saying is they devoured the righteous judges in the land. There are no more righteous judges in the land. I mean, a country is in bad shape when the judges who are judging things are evil men and women. A country is in bad shape and they devoured all the good Judges and all their kings, really let me reword that too, all their kings are fallen kings. All the kings of Israel are evil kings. You go through first and second kings and make you a list and go through every king of the, the northern kingdom, list down every king of the northern kingdom and what God had to say about that king. And there's not one of them where he said he did right in the eyes of the Lord. He did, and on, and on, but behind every king, he says he did wickedly in the eyes of the Lord. Not righteously in the eyes of the Lord, but wickedly in the eyes of the Lord. And none of their kings call upon the Lord. So none of the people call upon the Lord. They look to the kings for their welfare. They look to their false gods, their pagan gods for, for their welfare. They look to foreign nations for their welfare. And they're about to fall is what he's telling us here. Verse number eight, Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. If you've ever made pancakes, you can figure this metaphor out pretty easily. If you ever tried to mix too much stuff in your pancakes, they won't stick together, will they? They won't be unified. My wife used to make pancakes for the boys and she would always make extra pancake mix. And I like blueberry pancakes. 
but I like more blueberries than I like pancake mix. And so I would fill them full of blueberries and I would put them in the pan and they would fall into pieces and I would have a big mess. And I had to back off on my blueberries. But that's what he's saying here. Ephraim has mixed himself among these foreign peoples. And there's no unity in the nation. They're, they're falling apart. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Also, if you take a pancake, you got to keep flipping it, don't you? You can't leave it on one side because what's going to happen if you leave it on one side? It's going to burn on that side and it's going to be gooey on the other side. It's going to be cold on one side and hot on the other side. And that's where Israel was at this point. They were cold and they were, they were, they were, they were, they were burnt. They were about to be judged. And so they were in, they were, they were in, they were, they were cold to God and they were, they were in a big mess and, and uh, they were about to be burned and cast away. But they didn't know it. They didn't know it. Look at verse nine. I mean, actually, we'll get to that. Yeah, the last part of verse 9. But look at the first part of verse 9. Aliens had devoured his strength. Now, you didn't know the Bible talked about space aliens, did you? So it was the aliens' fault. That's what had gotten, the aliens came down from outer space. I'm going to give you this, and you can, you can write this down, and, and, and uh, it'll become part of your theology. Aliens came down from outer uh, space, and they devoured the strength of Israel. That's not what he's talking about there, is he? He's talking about foreigners. The foreigners have devoured their strength. They, they were relying on foreigners and they'd mixed themselves with foreigners through mixed marriages and, and, and all of these uh, political agreements and military agreements that they had made. And really they had, they had uh, devoured their strength. They had no more strength. And, and, and so their religion was devoured. Their relationship with God was devoured and they were in a real mess. And they didn't even know it. They didn't even know it. Look at the last part of verse 9. But he does not know it. Israel doesn't even know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and they're on them. They, they got these sparkly gray hairs. You know, they're getting gray hairs on their head. Yet he does not know it. I had a guy here at the church several years back. And he, man, he had silver hair, really pretty hair. And I said to him one day, I said, my hair's getting about as gray as your hair is. And he said, what do you mean you're getting about as gray? Your hair is already grayer than my hair. And I thought to myself, has he looked in the mirror? I mean, has this guy even looked in the mirror? I mean, it's one thing when you get a gray hair to pluck it out, you know, so you don't have any gray hair. Now, you, you, that can be dangerous. If you get too many gray hairs, you won't have any hair at all if you pluck them all out. But you, maybe, maybe one thing you can pluck it out so you can deny the fact you're getting gray hair. Or you can dye your hair and deny the fact you're getting gray hair. But when you are gray and you can't see it, you're living in la-la land. You're, li you're not living in reality. And that's the way Israel was. They weren't, they weren't living in reality. Here were the Israelites, and they had polluted themselves through sin. They had mixed with these foreigners, and they were falling apart, and they were, they were corrupt and immoral and out of, out of a relationship with God, and they didn't even realize it. They, they, they couldn't even see the fact that they had they'd fallen down this slippery path, and there was no way back up. And that's, that's the state, and I hate to say this, but that's the state of the United States of America today. We don't, we don't see the danger we're in. 
we don't see the fact that we've become so corrupt that at some point, if God judged Israel, he's going to judge the United States of America. I mean, we live in a society every bit as corrupt as the northern kingdom was in in the day that we're looking at here in, in the book of Hosea. And yet we don't even see it. Most people think everything's just fine and dandy. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you go to heaven. One way or the other, you'll get there. That's the philosophy of most people in our country. You look at surveys where people say they believe in God. I think one of them came out this week, and I was looking at some of the questions that they asked. And most people in this country still believe in God, but they, but they believe in a different God from the God we worship in the Bible. They don't believe in Jehovah God. They don't believe in Jesus Christ as God. They believe he is like a God, a good man or something, but, but they don't believe that there's only one way to heaven. No man comes to the Father except through the Son. They don't believe that. And they don't believe that God would ever judge the United States of America. They don't believe that. They don't believe that if we have some bad hurricane or some bad situation in in the United States, that God would have done that. God would have never done that. We're going to see in Amos where God says, if there's a calamity that comes to the city, did I not bring it? Did I not bring it? And then their pride testified against them because they were so proud. Look at verse number 10. And, And the pride of Israel testifies to his face. They were proud of their state proud of their nation. They were proud of the situation they were in. And I, I, I'm not getting in this political thing at all, but, but I heard somebody pouncing on Trump for saying, uh, you know, we want to make America great again. That's kind of, I think, his slogan. And this particular person, I'm not going to name names, said America already is great. Look how great we are right now. Man, if you, you know, you got to be blind to look at this country and say we're great right now. We're in, we're in dire straits right now. But we've got pride. We've got pride in our nation. I mean, it's kind of a mixed bag of tricks because we got some people who won't even stand for the Pledge of Allegiance in this country. That's what bad, that is troubling. It's troubling what's going on in this country right now. And the pride testifies against us. But they do not return to the Lord their God, nor they seek him for all of this because they have pride. They have pride in themselves, pride in the nation, and they don't think they needed, or they didn't think at this point they needed God, no more than the United States of America right now thinks that they need God. In fact, it's just the opposite. Get God out of everything, out of all of the public arena. Now look at verse number 11. This is going to read like the headlines. Ephraim is also like a silly dove without brains. They call to Egypt and they go to Assyria. You understand, what's a dove? What's a dove represent? Peace. They're silly. They're about peace at all costs. That's what he's saying there. And so they go to Assyria and they go to Egypt and they make treaties with the very people who are going to destroy them. Sound familiar? I mean, here are the Iranians marching in the streets, burning the flag, chanting death to America. And what do we do? We give them billions of dollars. 
We give them billions of dollars and we make a treaty with them that gives them all this money so they can build, finish building their nuclear bomb so they can destroy the United States of America. That's really smart. That is a silly dove. This business of peace without cost, I mean, with peace without, uh, at all cost, is, is, it's got a cost. Peace, it's, it, there are, those costs are, are, are greater than the benefits of the peace. Wherever they go, I will spread, but God's not going to let them get away with all of this. That's what he's about to say. These silly doves are going to get caught in their own net. Wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. Verse number 12. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. In other words, they've heard it. You're hearing it tonight. They heard that judgment was coming. And they just stuck their heads in the sand. But I'm going to chastise them according to what I've said I was going to do. The Lord says, woe to them. For they have fled from me. They haven't just walked away from me or drifted away from me. They have fled from me. They don't want anything to do with me. And instead of peace to them, destruction to them. Now, when God says destruction or peace to you, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get peace. Strength be to you. Guess what you're going to get? You're going to get strength. When God says destruction to you, guess what you're going to get? Destruction. And so the line had been drawn in the sand. They had crossed it. The Lord didn't, wasn't going to back off of what he said unless there was some kind of real repentance and that wasn't coming. And so he says destruction to them because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeem them. I was a redeemer. I saved them when they were in bondage. I took them out of the land of Egypt and I brought them into the promised land and I nurtured them like a mother and father would nurture their only child and I redeemed them and yet they have fled from me. Yet they have spoken lies against me. You know, whenever you say things about God that go against what has been revealed to us in his word, you are lying about him. We don't have the right to create God in our own image. We are created in the image of God. We don't get to remake God and rewrite the word of God. And we live in a country where there's lies constantly Spoken against the Lord. And so the Lord says, I'll bring those silly doves down like birds in a net. Then we can finish it up here. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. Now he's talking about now they're going down. They're going down and they did not cry out to me with their heart when, when they wailed upon their beds. They assembled to gather for grain and new wine, they rebel against me. Though I discipline and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the most high. They are, they are a treacherous bow. What's a treacherous bow? It's like a gun where you shoot yourself in the foot. 
They were shooting themselves. They're a treacherous bow. They're killing themselves by turning against me, the Lord says. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongues. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So Syria, what the Lord is saying here is that Syria is going to come down. They're going to destroy Israel. And what's Egypt going to do? They made friends with Egypt and made these treaties with Egypt. Egypt, what's Egypt going to do? They're going to sit back and laugh. They're not going to do anything to help Israel. And they will look to the Lord and they won't find him. Because remember in chapter 5, he said he will have returned to his own place and left them to themselves. End of chapter 7. Man, you can't see the parallels between what's going on in this day in chapter 7 in Israel and what's going on today in the United States of America. Then I doubt you can see the gray hairs in your own head. You're living in la-la land. We are in very dire straits here in the United States of America. And I'm not trying to scare anybody. But we are. And what should that cause us to do? It should cause us to pray for our nation. Now, the good news is I'm saved. And that God knows how to take care of his elect. God knows how to deliver his elect from judgment. Thank goodness we're saved. But, but also, until we get raptured out of here or until we die, guess what? We've got to live in this country. And we don't want things to get worse. We want things to get better. We need to be praying for our country. Not only do we have to live in our, this country, our children and maybe our grandchildren will, will have to live in this country after we're long gone. And if it keeps going down like it's going now, what, what kind of world are they going to be living in? And so we need to be praying for revival more than you know, you know, there's certain ways you can pray for this election, but more than praying for these elections, we need to be praying for a revival. We need to be praying for a change to come across this country. Man, we need that more than we need anything else. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just come to you tonight, and again, thank you for your presence here, and especially your presence in your word. And Lord, you, these warnings that you we're giving Israel in that day are certainly applicable to our situation today here in the United States. Lord, I just ask you to touch all of our hearts to, to seek you more in prayer and to beseech you to save this nation, to change this nation by your Holy Spirit, to bring revival to this nation. Father, we all know people... <laughs> that are close to us, that need Jesus as their Savior. Lord, make us better prayer warriors. Lord, give us the, the strength and encouragement to pray for those we know who are lost and to pray for this nation, to pray for this city. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. Even in Israel, you took a long time before you brought that nation down. 
because you are so full of grace and mercy. Lord, we, we don't pray for justice. We pray for mercy. Give us that mercy, Lord, because we've all sinned. We've all taken part in uh, the things that have happened to this nation. So, Lord, show us mercy. Show us grace. Bless the United States of America. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.